Hello, and welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode, we'll be discussing the 1957 Haramosh mountaineering disaster, in which five friends from Oxford University would seek to document and then climb the mountain, ultimately ending in avalanches, falls, and death. Looking forward to this one. It's been a while since we've been in the mountains, so it's nice to go back and to go back a little bit further this time, but also to discuss a mountain and and something that I I had never heard of anyway. And so it was really yeah really exciting to to investigate this and see see what happened. I'm having one of those disaster podcasting recording days. I finally managed to find some time to do this because it's been so busy recently. Uh, and then I loaded up, thought I'd lost half my script. And now I've just been talking for five minutes and realized I wasn't even recording. So well done me. Um, but I am looking forward to this episode. Please do, before I jump into it, follow me on Instagram. I'm at when it goes wrong pod. Uh, and do give me a rating <laughs> to to make me feel better about my terrible podcast podcasting, can I say it now, practices. Right, let's get back into this for the second time. Um, so the Haramosh Peaks is, is where this story takes place. And Har- the Haramosh Mountain is made up of two kind of peaks with a, with a trough in between them. So there's Haramosh 1 being the tallest one and then Haramosh 2. And they are located in the Karakoram Range, which is in the north of Pakistan. So further south than some of the mountains that we've talked about previously, but still in a, in a similar kind of area. And Haramosh was 7,500 metres in height, so very formidable and tall uh, as far as mountains go, but not as tall as some of the ones we talked about going into that kind of 8,000 metre death zone area. But yes, yeah, still, still pretty tall. And so we're going back, back in the story to 1957, which is before all of the other mountaineering stories that we've talked about. So it was a time where a lot of the peaks in that area in the Himalayas and in the Karakoram hadn't been fully documented or kind of reviewed in specifically by Westerners um, in terms of, of, of what, what the area was like. So Haramosh had originally had a German team go out there in 1955 and started doing a bit of documentation into the area, but uh, it was still pretty unknown and and an area that that wanted exploring. We move now to our our people involved. And so we start with a man called Bernard Gillett. And at the time, he was studying at Oxford University. And while studying, he was also a very avid mountaineer, loved climbing, loved loved summiting the peaks. And he was part of the Oxford University Climbing Club. And he was really keen to do a really big expedition as he got towards the end of his studies. And he wanted to do that kind of with the sponsorship and, and on behalf of the university and, and take this opportunity to to not only climb, but also to, to understand and document the area. So he campaigned uh, the university and others uh, for funding, but they kind of pushed back on him and said, well, you're not really experienced enough to, to go and lead this kind of expedition out to an area that he'd never been before. He needed to get someone who was more experienced in, in that area of the world and was more experienced with this high altitude climbing. 
So Bernard took the kind of deputy leader position and he went out to find someone who could take the lead. And he soon recruited a man called Tony Streeter, who was a professional soldier, but had had a lot of experience climbing in the Himalayas. He had climbed, or at least been part of the expedition that had done a lot of K2. And if you remember our K2 episode, going way, way back, K2 is like a very technical mountain. So it is uh, the mountain for mountaineers, as they said. So it, you, you can tell that clearly he's had a lot of experience and, and had done quite a few peaks in the area. And not only that, he knew contacts in Pakistan. He also knew some of the porters that they had worked with before. So he seemed like a real ideal person and he was in an interesting time of his life because he'd just been married and they just had a young son Uh, but he really was excited for this opportunity to climb again and to climb with quite an exciting club around him. Joining the two were then three others. Uh, We've got John Emery who was a very keen climber and also part of the Oxford Climbing Club and he was chosen because he was also a medical student, so he kind of could provide a bit more um, of the medical doctor side to the party. Uh, then we had Ray Culbert, and he was the oldest of the party, but I mean, he was only 25, so pretty young. And he was actually a Kiwi, and he had worked in New Zealand in the mountains and the and the kind of bush in New Zealand and had done a lot of climbing over there. So had a lot of experience in that in that arena but had now been attending Oxford to do his degree in forestry before going back to New Zealand so yep he was over and very keen for a trip and then finally we had Scott Hamilton who was an American again a keen climber at Oxford uh, and he really brought some really good sponsorship money to the team which was very much uh, appreciated by the others. So we've got this team of five. We've got Gillett and Streether, who are the kind of deputy leaders. Uh, and then the three others, John Emery, the Doctor, Culbert and Hamilton accompanying them. So once it was agreed between the five of them, they started planning. And planning, of course, took months and months and months because, like, I just can't even imagine now doing this stuff not in the age of the internet and (laughs) and things like that it must have just been so hard it must have just been like constant phone calls and lots of paperwork and all this type of thing it must have been yeah very very difficult but they planned it all they got their climbing permits all of that type of stuff and they shipped out actually the majority of their belongings because it was too expensive to fly a lot of them so they put them on a ship uh, and Emery had finished early so he went along with them on the ship and they yeah just just sent them the long way around uh, but the rest actually all managed to fly there they were originally all going to get the ship but um some of the late sponsorship money meant that they could fly which uh, would have saved them a very good amount of time so they were pleased with that the group itself i mean they they kind of knew each other before but they weren't close and obviously they brought streeter streeter in as a as external so you know they weren't as super familiar with each other in terms of 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 the party itself but they really you know they got on well they seemed compatible with each other um and that really in in such a small expedition like we're talking about was was really the most important thing So when they arrived in Pakistan, they met uh, their porters. So similar to like the Sherpas that we've talked about in previous episodes. In this case, they're called the Hunza porters, H-U-N-Z-A. And they uh, were, yeah, kind of local porters in the area to help them with all their equipment and help them with setting up camps. 
And we're following a very similar kind of process that we've talked about previously in terms of setting up camps up the mountain uh, in order to, to travel up higher and higher each time, which would then allow them a, a summit bid. They headed off towards this mountain, trekking away, and they kind of scouted it from a lot of different angles first to see which would be the best for them to climb from. But in like a lot of the angles didn't look very good, <laughs> so they were a bit bit disheartened but eventually uh, they decided on a northeastern approach to the top of the mountain and the route that they thought would take them through up to Haramosh 2 so like I mentioned how it has two peaks they'd first go up to Haramosh 2 which is a slightly smaller peak down into the basin between the two peaks and then up Haramosh 1 and really this wasn't a great route <laughs> from a from a from any point of view really it meant that they would have have to climb 22,000 feet before descending another 2,000 and then climbing up the main summit and then it also meant that they had to do that on reverse so um, you have to then climb up something to then climb down so it wasn't an ideal route and it would mean that they'd have to not only put kind of camps all the way up to Haramosh 1 so to up to Haramosh 2 sorry they would then have to put camps in the basin and yeah it was it was very quite a difficult a difficult route that they were considering but they figured, why not? This is this is the only one that, that seems feasible in terms of what could be done. So they got there. They started uh, making these camp. They generally seemed to get on well at the beginning. They had a few disagreements with their porters. Uh, they didn't seem to treat them particularly well. And the, the porters are kind of worried a bit about like the the snow and they were kind of seen like oh like the snow's not good we don't want to walk today because the snow's got not good and the the british men kind of saw that as like them being lazy but in reality they were just being cautious anyway so there was there was kind of disagreements between them but also this really highlighted that actually they would all regularly see avalanches in the higher areas and not only that but the climbs between the camps were actually quite technical climbs it wasn't a super easy place to to kind of port things up and down so yeah but they but they managed and they set up these camps and they generally were doing all right the weather itself was was quite hard to predict and hard to manage throughout the trip uh, which makes sense because they didn't really know the, the region that well. I thought it was it was nice in that they their their local radio station knew of the expedition and they would give them a specific weather forecast each evening. I thought it was very nice because obviously how else are they going to get any information? But yeah, the the local radio would say for the Oxford University Climbing Club, here is your <laughs> weather forecast for the top of Haramosh, and they would kind of base what they did on that that weather forecast that came out. So yeah, they didn't really know exactly like what the exact patterns were. Uh, they did definitely have quite a few storms that they had to kind of weather through and stay in their tents for a while, sometimes when they were in quite high camps. But they were pretty confident that towards the end of their trip, they were towards the end of August, beginning of September, they were expecting quite a, quite a nice period of weather, uh, which, which would be ideal. So yes, they 
they started making their different camps up the mountain and were cutting steps in between them. But yeah, the weather was kind of against them in terms of they would cut all these steps and make a really nice path between their camps, but then the weather would come in and cover it all up um, and kind of clear the progress that they made and force them to do it again. Which was, yeah, very difficult, very disheartening. And they moved up and down between the camps for, for weeks on end, creating camps further up the mountain. Uh, they got all the way up to a camp four. So they had a base camp and then four camps above it, uh, all going towards the top of the mountain. But that said, they did, like, they had some good luck and some not so good luck. So one of the camps, Camp 3, which was at 18,500 feet, uh, they took up, like, a load of food and then they, like, put a flag on it and were like, cool, we'll come back. Uh, But then it snowed by the time they got back and then the flag was lost and then basically all the food got buried and they spent ages looking for it. Like, every single time anyone went to their camp, they'd, like, look for this food and they just could not find it, which was, yeah real shame and a real worry for the for the guys about whether they'd have enough food generally the spirits of the group were very high uh, they generally climbed in pairs so they were getting quite close uh, they were getting nice nice friendships between them but they also had a good amount of kind of quiet time uh, when they needed it they seem to have questionable health <laughs> like when you read about it they also always seem to be having issues specifically a lot of them seem to have regular bouts of dysentery, which, I mean, I thought dysentery was really dangerous, but maybe not. I googled it and it's all about like like infections of your intestine, which causes as what, whatever you would expect that to cause <laughs> um, and very like bloody and just not very good. And I mean, we did the Donna party last week and I'm pretty sure whenever you play the Oregon Trail, you die from dysentery a lot, right? Uh, but yeah, they seem to so they seem to kind of have these bouts of dysentery, which I guess sign of the times that impacted some of their climbing. Obviously, meant that they didn't feel that great, but they kind of seemed to come and go. But they did have Emery there, who was helping with their health and could help advise them. And actually, Emery had done also a lot of help to all of the locals and was doing a lot of medical care from a wider perspective as well, which was very nice. So yes, so they they generally were having a pretty good trip. Uh, There was only one major incident in which Emery fell down a crevice, but he managed to get out successfully with a rope. So yeah, everything was kind of progressing, but they weren't getting really much closer to the top and time was running out. They'd booked their their transport back to the boat and then they booked their boat home. So they they knew kind of what date they had to climb until... But they had this spout of bad weather and they realised that actually we're not going to get up this main Haramosh peak. It's just not going to happen. Don't have enough time. And they were like, but that's okay. They've done an amazing amount of work, an amazing amount of documentation, etc. So they, what they thought they would do is that they would at least climb Haramosh 2, so the, the kind of second peak, smaller peak, uh, climb up that one. Uh, and then at least if they've kind of done the first bit of their climb and maybe they'd come back later and do the rest of it. They would go to Camp 4 and then head out early that day to get to the top of Haramosh 2 and then head back. And four of them went out to Camp 3 to do that, which and they left Hamilton behind them in Camp 3 to wait for them. So Gillett, Emery, Colbert and Streether all set off to Camp 4 and then all set out to top Haramosh. 
So it was a beautiful day when they set off for the ascent and it all seemed to go well. They made it up to the top of Haramash 2. They had these stunning views. They sat back. They enjoyed the view. They enjoyed the sunshine. Uh, they yeah, had some food. It was all going well. But before they decided to head back down, two of the climbers, Gillette and Emery, decided to kind of climb up just a little bit higher from where they were. Uh, just there was like basically like a pinnacle of snow that went up above the the summit where they were sitting, and they decided to to keep on climbing and go up there just to see a bit further around the area and and yeah, get a better view. Uh, the other two, Streetha and Culbert, stayed where they were and they took some photos. But within seconds, there was a really large explosion that they heard. And before anyone knew it, the snow that Gillette and Emery were standing on was gone. And before they knew it, they were falling deep into the void. They were surrounded by snow, which was a good thing in that it meant that it cushioned their fall. So they fell over 200 feet below them into into a, a kind of basin. But they didn't die from that type of fall because they had all the snow falling with them so they they fell down and it was just mainly shock really at the beginning uh, they didn't they didn't even think that an avalanche was was possible due to the angle of the slope all of that type of thing it just didn't even kind of cross their minds but it was too late and everyone was very shocked by what happened. So Streether and Colbert were still at the top of Haramosh 2. And they kind of peered off over the edge to see if they could spot them. And thankfully, they could see Gillette getting up and walking around. And they could also see Emery sitting in the snow. So they knew that they had survived. So yes, thankfully, both survived the fall. But Emery had dislocated his hip. So first he was like, oh, I can't stand. But then... I mean, they don't explain it much in the book, which is probably a good thing, but somehow he kind of managed to like roll over and relocate his hip, <laughs> which doesn't sound very pleasant. But yes, he managed to kind of put his hip back into place um, and then got up soon after that. But in the fall, they had both lost their ice axes, which were obviously very important for them for their climbing. And they also lost some of their gloves. So they were in quite a bad way in terms of being able to actually climb out of the basin. They wouldn't really be able to do it by themselves. They had to wait for the others to come and rescue them. So Streetha and Colbert, first of all, tried to throw a backpack down to them with some kind of equipment and, and food in that. But unfortunately, the backpack just kind of fell off the cliff. So Streetha and Colbert knew that they had to descend and they had to do it pretty quickly uh, because of the lack of gloves, that type of thing they needed to, to get down. But it was a very difficult place for them to climb and it was very difficult climbing down. It was pretty much vertical. They cut a lot of steps as they went down, uh, but then soon... It, they kind of hit a point where they couldn't go any further. And actually, as they've been climbing, the two at the bottom kept being like, go to the right. And they were like, no, it's fine. Then they realized it wasn't. So then they had to basically tra traverse significantly to the right to avoid this big ice cliff and then continue descending down and cutting steps down. However, at some point, a potentially quite innocuous event happened which was that Colbert lost one of his crampons which is the thing that like ties to your shoe that allows you to climb and that actually was a really big loss because it really impacted his ability to climb and his ability to like get to purchase on on the ice 
And so he ended up having to take like his overboot off. So he's kind of like overshoe. And so that then he could still like whack his foot into the ice and, and be able to climb. But it was really bad because it meant that his foot wasn't as well protected, meaning his foot was getting frostbitten. And yeah, it wasn't wasn't a good a good point for Colbert in terms of, of losing that. After hours and hours of them climbing down, uh, they did finally make it down to the basin and they were reunited with Emery and Gillette. They immediately decided it was too cold to stay where they were. Obviously, there were now all four of them in the basin. Um, everyone relatively well, but a bit of frostbites on hands and feet and lacking some equipment. So they decided it's too cold. They need to, to start climbing out immediately. You know, keep in mind, everyone's pretty tired by this point as well. It was getting it was getting late, but they were like, no, we should really try and get up and out. So they initially tied themselves together, all four of them, uh, by a connected rope to hopefully um, just help those that didn't have equipment uh, stay on the mountain. And it kind of seemed to go well, but then it was quite slow going. Um, and actually, then one of them fell off, which then resulted in all three of them falling off because there wasn't, didn't seem to be the the ability for the others to, to stay on it was like one at a time they just kind of kept falling off uh, and this was also because they were having to climb in like weird tandem so like one person would go ahead and then the others would follow and and then in one of them one of them fell asleep and that pulled them all off so yeah they and then in that next fall they lost their only remaining ice axes and so they were like this is just awful we need to go down and rest and then try again in the morning so they headed down. They weren't they were kind of huddled together in as much shelter as they could at this point, but they weren't they weren't feeling great. They hadn't had anything to drink or anything to eat at this point. Uh, Gillett especially was going downhill uh, and, and was seeming a bit out of it. But Emery shot him up with some morphine, um, which seemed to help uh, and put him to sleep. So yeah, they had a, a miserable night uh, trying to get a little bit of rest before waking up again and trying to climb out at trying to climb out of the basin so in the morning they set off again but this time with no rope and did did one at a time and thankfully they actually managed to find one of their ice axes uh, as they were climbing which was amazing because it meant that it just made that there was so much more um, ability for them to cut into into the ice and make steps and holds and that kind of thing there was like a horrible story about how some of them were just like punching the ice in order to like make handholds and like their hands were bleeding and all this kind of thing. It was, yeah, awful. But it did mean that, yeah, they found this ice axe, which was just like lodged in the ice still. And that really helped uh, for the others that were following them. And so, like I said, Culbert had lost his crampon and he had been struggling along, but he hadn't complained at all. But it was clearly getting to be a hard time for him. He was really struggling to climb. He had really severe frostbite now on that other foot that didn't have the crampon or the overboot on. And he eventually asked for a belay to help him climb up the trickier part of the of the area that they were trying to go up. And they the three of them got near to the top. So they got up the top bit and then across the traverse. And then they were going to go up the next bit. And they were going to belay Culbert from the bottom up to where to where they were. So Streetha, Emery, Gillett were all at the top. Culbert was at the bottom waiting for his belay. And Streetha was like, yep, I'm, you know, he was the one that hadn't been in the 
face him for as long. He seemed to be the strongest at the time. He passed the rope down to Colbert and kind of Streether tried to secure himself as well as he could using his ice axe um, and Colbert started climbing. And then unfortunately, he lost his grip and Colbert fell. And that was bad because Streether couldn't like keep his grip on where he was standing, where he was beeling from. So when Colbert fell, it meant that Streether also fell um, and both of them basically fell back into the basin to where they had started the climb. And there was a, a good quote in the book, which was, the irony of this reversal of their situations, rescuers in the basin and rescued on the upper slope was so unbearable that they couldn't discuss it. They continued sl- silently up the sloping wall of snow that towered above them, deeply aware of the despondence of the two men in the basin on their efforts in the next few hours. Which is so tragic. I just think that's so sad that, yeah, two of them fell down, two of them went after to get them. And then on the way up, the two that went after are now down the bottom and the two that were in the bottom are now at the top so yeah not not in a good space so to summarize in a clearer way than what i just said um emery and jillet at the top emery and jillet being the ones that did the initial fall both very tired both very dehydrated they had been out longer without without equipment streether and colbert down in the basin uh, colbert very much struggling in terms of his foot Streetha generally the strongest out of the pack up until now um, and had been really leading the charge. He was, again, the most experienced climber, uh, the one that had climbed in the Himalayas before. Um, and so he, yeah, was was in the bottom but was generally feeling pretty good. Emery and Gillett, once they saw Streetha and Colbert fall, they obviously didn't really know what to do, but they decided, no, they're almost at the top of the climb. What they should do is that they they would, they would knew they were too weak to be able to get down and then back out again. So they needed to keep climbing up. They needed to go to camp four, eat, drink, recover, and then go back and, and help Colbert and Streether in the basin. And so they continued on, made it up the top, and then had to kind of descend down to where camp four was. at this point was getting increasingly delirious he wasn't feeling good at all he had a really bad um frostbite on his hands and his feet at the top they came across across these backpacks and they were like oh there must be food in them but they unfortunately was not there was water but it was just frozen solid so they couldn't really do anything with it and they were both clearly so out of it because there were two backpacks and they both searched the same one (laughs) and didn't look in the other one which yeah, not ideal. But Emery at this point then really started lagging behind. Was just he was just utterly exhausted at this point, and he unfortunately lost his footing and fell down a crevasse. Again, he'd already fallen down one crevasse on this trip, but he fell down another crevasse. But he luckily had like landed on a ledge rather than falling all the way down. And we're not talking about crevasses in the same extent as we talked about in our touching the void episode thankfully um but he basically fell down and then just like passed out because he was so tired on this ledge and thankfully the next day he woke up and was actually realized that he could get out pretty easily so he kind of walked out of it but he so emery continued climbing down to camp four this next day again just like fully out of it 
not not a happy camper. But he was following Gillette's foot, footprint. So Gillette obviously had been up the top with him and had been in a better way. But as Emery got closer to the camp and he could see the, the camp for tents in the distance, he suddenly started realising that there were these footprints that were kind of a few days old, as in their ones when they set off, going off to the camp. But there were new footprints from Gillette, which kind of cut across where that path was back to the camps. And these footprints carried on for a little while and then stopped at the edge of a cliff. And Emery came to the horrific realisation that only like literal moments from safety, Gillette had kind of unwittingly walked over the edge of a cliff, which is tragic. Uh, and so he, yeah, he must have just been literally so exhausted by this point that he just didn't turn to go to the tents. He just kind of carried on straight. And, you know, there were no signs of, of like him trying to break his fall or anything like that. Clearly, he literally just walked off it in a, in a stupor before he even realised anything had happened. And Emery at this point was pretty horrified by this, kind of yelled out to him to, to see if they could hear anything, but uh, they didn't hear anything from him further. So he knew that at this point um, that he that he was very likely had died from his fall. Emery turned back and continued to camp uh, and just collapsed as soon as he was in camp. Like I said, his hands and his feet were very severely frostbitten. Uh, he couldn't light up a stove uh, at all. Uh, so he opened some tins of fruit and he and he drank the juices in, in fruit. And finally, after, after doing that and getting a bit of, of energy back, he lit a fire and just drank as much, as much as he could. And he, at this point, you know, he was desperate to try and go back to Culbert and Streether, but he was in such a bad way that there was just no way. Literally just like drank and drank and drank and then just totally passed out in the, in the camp. So down in the basin, kind of parallel to, to the story with Emery and Gillett, uh, we had Culbert and Streether. And basically, as soon as they fell, uh, they tried to climb out again uh, to get to get out. But Culbert was just in a really bad way. He had been already was really badly frostbitten, but then he hurt himself even further on the fall. And he tried climbing together. Streeter tried to to climb with him, but because they just had really limited equipment, it just wouldn't work. And so Streether basically said to Colbert that Streether was going to carry on, climb out, um, and that he would come back for him uh, once he got out. And Colbert agreed uh, and laid in the basin below. And Colbert was like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow you. Uh, but just couldn't really move and was just, yeah, Streether. Last saw him attempting to, to try and climb out, but was just, yeah, in an awful way. Streether, however, did manage to get to the top. Um, he also saw the footprints of Gillette and got very confused by them, but he managed to make it back to the tent where he managed to arouse Emery uh, and Emery told him what had happened with, with Gillette going over, over the edge. And Streether was was obviously horrified by this as well. He also went back to the to the point um, and, and yelled out for, for Gillette to see if they um, could hear him, but but they couldn't. So Streeter, Streeter then headed back to the tents and again collapsed. He made loads of liquids, laid, you know, just, just rehydrated, re, refueled. Um, and then they just both lay down exhausted. They, they both at this point were, were very, very badly frostbitten, especially in their hands. Um, and they, and they fell asleep. 
in the morning, Streeter was the only one in a good way, basically. So he looked at Emery and Emery was in a really bad way. And Streeter had a really awful decision to make, which was he didn't even know if he was going to be able to get Emery out of Camp 4 and down to, to Camp 3 and beyond. But he had Culbert back in the basin. And... I mean, realistically, he knew that Colbert had very much likely died the night before because of the way he was, the way he was, and how exhausted he was, and and out in the in the elements. But it just—it was just an, an awful, an awful decision that he had to make. He was like, either I try and get him and Emery down safely, or he goes back and tries to go and get Colbert. And and in reality, Colbert was probably dead, and Streeter would probably die in the attempt to go and get him. So. It was just an awful, awful decision that that he had to make, and they agonised about it. But soon decided that no, they had to they had to make the way down, and they couldn't they couldn't go back for Colbert. And Streeter like left equipment out and like a note and sleeping bag where Camp Four was, um, just in like the the vague hope that maybe he would make it out alive. And there was a really good quote, I thought, in the book, which was, uh, to leave a man to his fate on a mountain was something that no mountaineer ever contemplated. The tradition was old as mountaineering, and it embraced the people of the hills as well as the climbers themselves. The Sherpas would never leave anyone to die. They would stay with them and die with them rather than leave them. For a man like Streetha, indeed for any man, it was a terrible decision to have to make. It was a decision the necessity of which would haunt him all his life. Yet fundamentally, it wasn't a decision at all. There was no choice. Just generally, yeah. A really, really awful choice that he had to make with friends and with other options and i think that it felt it felt i mean we've talked a lot about helping others down and and leaving them but i don't know this one felt different maybe because they were close and they it like it just been like literally it was a difference of having a crampon or not it just yeah but they did eventually make it down so they continued down to camp three uh where hamilton had been waiting all this time um, and was very confused as to what happened and he'd been really stressed because he didn't know whether to like go up and try and find them or whether they had all died or whether he should go down and try and get help but then they might come back when he was going down and he had managed to kind of work himself up but anyway they all met and Hamilton was really horrified by what had happened uh, but he did support the two others back down and you know it wasn't a <laughs> it wasn't an easy way down from there either they had to they were obviously not in a in a great way so they kept having to stop they had to stop in a in a snow cave overnight but but they did eventually make it all the way down to the porters and made it back to the city so yeah, of the five of them that went, uh, Gillett fell off when he was walking back to Camp 4 and Culbert fell back into the basin and couldn't make it out by himself. But we had Streeter, Hamilton and Emery who did all make it um, and who managed to make it home. But yeah. Uh, so following this, uh, they both got medical help. Emery had very bad injuries to his hands and feet, and he had a very long recovery period to 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 gain movement again. And he yeah it took him many months. But a couple of years later, he did actually return to mountaineering uh, because it was one of his passions. But then he sadly died in 1963 in one of his mountain escapades um falling down another mountain a bit tragic in, in that sense as well to make it out and then yeah die only 
six years later. Uh, but Streather did continue climbing and he climbed for many, many years. And he actually lived until 2018, where he died at the age of 92, um, which was good. There was another party then that went out and climbed Haramosh again the next year. I I struggled with finding like the details of who climbed it and when, but I think that it was they reportedly Noah managed to climb the route that they were going to do until 1995. But I struggled a little bit to find exactly the the dates of of what had happened with that. So yeah, it clearly was a was a tricky mountain to climb in terms of the circumstances they were facing. So what we learned, little, I mean, a bit of a hard one. They, I mean, they they learned, like we learned a lot from their trip because they did so much, so much documentation and navigation of the area, documentation of the route, all of that type of stuff, which was then used by, by future expeditions, which was great. But I think, guess, like what we learned in terms of the overarching piece is just like how how horrible it is and that those horrible decisions have always been around when it comes to mountaineering and it's a debate we've had many times and I won't have it again but do listen to my other episodes because we talk a lot about do you save others or do you save yourself and how different that becomes when you're on a mountain versus what you logically think of when you're not same with scuba diving actually listen to that one too um it is yeah it's really really horrible but yeah, but I just thought that was such an amazing story. I just cannot believe that they, like the two fell and then the then there was like a full role reversal. And it was weird because I'd read the um, Wikipedia before I read the book and I like knew who died. But then I was reading the book and I was really confused because obviously the two had fell, fallen down, but the, the two that fell in weren't the two that died. So it was like quite a quite a, a twisting tale, I would say. Uh, but one that, yeah, was very tragic, but clearly you know i mean they loved it right those two that survived were out climbing not not much later so anyway let me recommend some references uh there's a good book of course there's a book um it's called the last blue mountain and it's by ralph barker it was published in 1959 uh, so it is a little bit dated in some areas um especially when it comes to women and talking about people that are native to pakistan and the area but there's a kind of a note at the front that explains that and and covers it uh so but but very good otherwise really really good it's it's not super long so i do recommend giving it a read it covers in a lot of detail like their personalities covers like the the lead up to the trip a lot more on on what happened before the incident itself uh in terms of how they set up and how they progressed up the mountain and, and that type of thing so yeah i do really recommend it and i do i found the book really sad like I mean, I do a podcast about things going wrong and I'm not a super, as you can tell, I'm not a super emotional person. And so I rarely, I don't think I've cried at any other books that I've read for the podcast, but I have to say at the end of that, there were a few little quotes. I put them on my Instagram and I was like, there was a, there was a little tear. There was a little tear. Um, it was just, yeah, just the way he like portrays the emotional pain that Streeter had when he had to make that decision between going back for Culbert and taking Emery down. Like you really could, like it felt like tangible pain. Um, so 
be warned, I guess, um, if, if, if that is the case. Um, I'll put another couple of readings, articles, readings um, on there as well. There isn't a huge amount actually online about this. Um, I didn't find much at all. You know, I put this on my Instagram as well. Usually there's a really detailed Wikipedia and all this kind of stuff. There's nothing. There's one paragraph on this on the Wikipedia. So that's, <laughs> that tells you. Um, but the book covers everything. And yes, there were another couple of articles I found that, that cover a reason amount of detail so I will reference both of those as well but yeah if you're interested in this have a read of the book I'm pretty sure because it was done so long ago it's pretty cheap on my on my kindle so yes give that a go cool well thank you so much for listening I hope you enjoyed this episode I would love to hear your thoughts um what yeah had you heard of this before was this also new to you uh drop me a line either on instagram at when it goes wrong pod or you can drop me an email when it goes wrong pod at gmail.com uh, and like I said please do rate subscribe all those other fun things that that you can do for the podcast thanks so much